You are listening to You Were Made for This, the podcast to help transform your relationships into the best they can be. Welcome to You Were Made for This. If you find yourself wanting more from your relationships, you've come to the right place. Here you'll discover practical principles you can use to experience the life-giving relationships you were made for. And now here's your host, John Sertalic. Hey, thank you, Carol, and hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode, where today we pick up where we left off in last week's show, the one about asking questions of each other. The problem, as we discussed in episode 63 last week, is that we may want to engage with someone. We may want to develop a deeper relationship, but we don't know what to ask to get things started. You know, it's easy to say, ask more questions to cure our CD20, our curiosity deficiency that we talked about. But many times we just can't think of questions to ask. It's especially true in relating with the quiet introverts among us. Because we can't think of questions to ask, many of us will default to what's easiest, namely talking, talking about ourselves. We look at the other person through what I call me-colored glasses. When someone shares an experience or thought, we jump in and share a similar thought or experience from our life. We listen to others autobiographically, as Stephen Covey talks about it. What I have discovered, however, is there are only two questions we ever need to remember if we're serious about engaging someone in a substantive conversation. It's the vaccine we need to cure us of the dreaded curiosity deficiency virus. It's just really two questions to ask. It only takes two questions to exercise our curiosity muscles to build new relationships or strengthen old ones. Just two, that's all. In today's episode, so as not to overload you, we're going to consider just the first of these two questions. It will be easy to remember, but if you want to take notes, you'll just need a single post-it note. Pause this recording if you need to, to go get one, because you don't want to miss this. Take a deep breath, maybe get a glass of water. You might even do some stretching exercises to get ready. (laughs) Well, before I tell you what this simple question is, I need to tell you how it came to be. Questions come naturally for me because people interest me. During my career as a teacher, I worked in my spare time to get a master's degree in counseling, and I learned a little bit about asking questions. Good counselors, however, ask few questions, I learned, and I do believe that to be the case. Uh, We'll save that concept for another time, because we're not here to talk anything at all about anything, even remotely close to counseling. Well, after I left teaching and I got into the business world as an executive recruiter, that's where I really learned about questions, in the business world. My job was essentially a sales position, and I learned quickly that the best salespeople ask good questions. They listen more than they talk. So many of us have had experiences with bad salesmen who just talk and talk and talk, but the really good ones, the exceptional ones, are the ones that listen, and they ask good questions. Well, toward the end of my business career, my wife and I helped start a missionary care ministry. 
we found that people who want to care for missionaries were sometimes at a loss for what questions to ask them. So I started compiling a list of dozens of questions that I would typically ask. But then I realized that's just way too complicated. No one's going to remember the list. So I scrapped the list and came up with just two. Two questions that I think are impossible to forget. Here's the first one, and it's the only one we'll consider in this episode. The second one we'll tackle another time, probably next week's show. But here's the first question. It is to ask ourselves a question. Namely, from what I know of the person in front of me so far, what might it be like to be them? I'll repeat that. From what I know of the person in front of me so far, what might it be like to be them? When we ask ourselves this question, from what I know of the person in front of me so far, what might it be like to be them? When we ask that question of ourselves, other questions about the person will naturally arise within us organically, even when we have very limited information about the other person. They're organic, kind of like organic bananas that you find in the fruit aisle at the grocery store. They just come up within us. You really don't need to know much to begin to ask yourself this question. What might it be like to be that person? Let me give you an example of how this works. Several years ago, when I still was running my recruiting business, Janet and I decided to sign up for a seminar on conflict on the mission field because we were working with missionaries at that time, as we still do. And this conference was uh, being held in Gull Lake, Michigan. Well, to get to Gull Lake, Michigan, we had to drive through Chicago uh, during rush hour one Friday night. The conference started on a Friday night. I took off work a little bit earlier, and we loaded up the car and headed out and uh, (laughs) drove through Chicago. I feel so sorry for people that live in Chicago with all the traffic and Uh, Rush hour traffic on a Friday night is just rather stressful, uh, at least for me anyway. Bumper to bumper cars, people whizzing in and out. And so we finally get get to Gull Lake, Michigan and this beautiful campground and uh, are just really ready for this conference. And uh, we were tired uh, from the drive and we met some people. Uh, They had kind of an informal gathering the night before. And after that, we went to our room, and then I discovered that I had made a big mistake. I had left half of our luggage at home. We didn't have much. It was just a weekend, and, but we um, divided up separately, and I had left half of it at home. And I was really irritated at, at myself. Didn't sleep well that night and woke up the next morning uh, still kind of crabby at the prospect of kind of wearing the same clothes for the whole weekend and wondering what people are going to think. And and so we, we had breakfast in this cafeteria, and it was a buffet-style breakfast, and it was a rather large cafeteria. So Janet and I got our tray, and we went to the farthest, remotest part of the cafeteria because we just I just didn't want to talk to anybody because I was so crabby and didn't want to inflict, inf, inflict my crabbiness onto someone else. So we're sitting there eating breakfast, and then all of a sudden I notice that 
there's an older man with his tray walking toward us. And I thought, oh no, oh no, he's going to sit with us and we're going to have to engage in a conversation. Oh no. Well, he he came and he and he sat down and we exchanged um, pleasantries. And and I noticed he had uh, a, a, a European accent. And so I just uh, said to him, um, I, I I noticed your accent. Uh, where are you from? And he said, Oh, I'm from Holland. And I said, I I lived there till I was about 19, and then I moved to Canada. And uh, I moved to Canada, and I've been a retired pastor in Canada. Hmm, I thought. And uh, so we talked a little bit more, and then, then I started thinking. I mean, this guy was pretty old, and he said he's from Holland. He grew up in Holland, lived there during his, up to the, till the time he was 19 or 20. And, and I, I continued to think, and, and the thought occurred to me, and I asked him this question, uh, thinking about what's it like to be this guy? And it was very subconscious to me, in, in my mind. So I said to him, uh, so you left Holland when you were 19. By any chance, were you in Holland during World War II? And a big smile broke, off, broke out on his face. He said, oh, yes, yeah, I lived through all of that. I said, what was that like? Well, he just started to tell one delightful story after another. You wouldn't think there were delightful stories about um, the Nazis occupying our, 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 his country, but, but they were. And um, he said it was, it, it was just a very stressful time. You know, you saw uh, these German soldiers with rifles walking everywhere, and it, it was just a very stressful time. And I thought, well, that's that's really fascinating. And and then I said, well, how how did you end up in Canada then? And he and he and he smiled and he kind of chuckled and he said, oh, that's an interesting story. He said after the war, Holland was concerned that the country would not be able to support our, our growing population, and so they came up with a government program. Now, the government's really good about things like this. Government program. Uh, whereby they would offer someone in those that amounted in those days to about twenty-five thousand um, dollars, whatever their currency was, guilders, I think. But it amounted to about twenty-five thousand dollars in U.S. dollars at that time for people to move, to leave, to to emigrate from the Netherlands and move somewhere else in the world and don't come back. <laughs> um, you can come back as a visitor, but we don't want you to move back here because of concern that the, uh, the country could not support a growing population. And he said, so I was 19 years old. I was footloose and fancy free, and I didn't have a care in the world. So I took the money and uh, moved to Canada. Well, then I said, well, uh, Canada, why, why Canada of all places? Why not the U.S.? And he smiled and laughed again, and he said, oh, that's easy. He said, when we were liberated... Uh, the uh, Canadian soldiers were so much nicer and friendlier than the American soldiers. And I thought, if I'm going to move to a country, I want to move to a friendly country. So I'm going to move to Canada. And we both laughed over that. And anyway, he moved to Canada, uh, became a pastor, and the rest is history. 
and uh, and and then the breakfast time was over, and we had to leave, and uh, and he he left before we did, and Jan and I were just sitting there, and and we were just thinking about what this guy said, and and then I realized something. I my my uh, funk, my crabbiness had just dissipated because I was so energized by this conversation. A conversation that started with just thinking, what's it like to be that other person? All I knew was that he had a, a foreign accent. And that's all I knew. And he was an older guy. Just made an observation about this older man who had a foreign accent. Just that little bit of information about this complete stranger evoked organically just a whole bunch of questions about this man that lifted my spirits. And I hadn't thought about this for a while, but um, thinking about it just recently while I was preparing for this podcast, I, I wonder if this man was not an angel that God sent to get me out of my depressive funk and crabbiness. You know, the Bible talks about that, that we sometimes entertain angels that we're unaware of. And I, I just wonder if this guy was like that because I didn't, we didn't run into him uh, any, any, any more the rest of the conference. I don't know what happened to him. But that's what questions can do when you just start thinking about what's it like to be the other person. Well, this raises a question then of how do you do that? How do you think about what's it like to be the other person? A couple of things come to mind. One is uh, to stop thinking about yourself for the moment. Because when we do that, it will free you up with the energy and the relational calories you need to think about someone else. You'll need that energy for wholly imagining about the other person. And for a brief second in that, my crabby state that Saturday morning in, in Gull Lake, Michigan, somehow I had the reserves to, to be able to do that, to, to stop thinking about myself for the moment. It's basically just putting ourselves in the other person's shoes and then walking around in them a bit. It's to connect our present encounter with our past experience. I think I've mentioned before, I was a history major in college, and I loved history. And, and uh, just thinking about this older guy and picturing, you know, was it possible that he was living in, in Holland during the war? And it was possible he, he may not have been. But that was okay. I didn't have to be 100% accurate in my imagining because the other person, he would have corrected me. And so I was drawing upon some past experience that I had studying history that somehow might relate to the other person. I want to stress the word might in speculating about what it might be like to be the other person. Because as I said, you don't have to be 100% correct. If you're not, the other person will guide your thinking and he'll, he'll correct you. He or she will correct you. Well, here's how we benefit when we ask ourselves, what might it be like to be the other person? For one thing, it can ease us out of our depression and concerns about our problems, as it did for me that Saturday morning. What we learn about another person can enrich our life. I grew to appreciate Canadians after hearing this guy's story. It was just fascinating. It expands our world. That sure did for me that, that morning. I still think about it. I still think about that wonderful man perhaps an angel. 
And it's a way to find role models and mentors for our life when we think about what it's like to be another person. And I, and I come back to, to something that we uh, often will share in workshops that we give on, on caring for each other, and it's this. If we knew more about each other, we'd sin against each other less. I have found that to be true so often that if we know more about each other, we'd sin against each other less. And one way of knowing about someone else is to ask questions and to think about what is life like from their perspective. Because knowing someone well makes it easier to extend grace and forgiveness to them. If you forget everything else, here's the one thing I hope you remember from today's episode. Considering what it might be like to be another person will naturally and organically evoke questions within us about that person. We can then ask these questions to begin a substantive conversation which will deepen our relationship with that person. So what can we do with all this? How can we respond? How can we take some kind of action to, to benefit ourselves? Well, one thing is to ask God to help us open our eyes to other people, to help us exercise our curiosity muscles about them, to see people as God sees them, and to derive a measure of joy from others as he does, to show grace to people, to forgive them as he has forgiven us. Another thing we can do is to take some time to understand someone's history, to learn about the context in which people grew up. There's a political, social, and cultural history we're all part of. It affects us all. Think of how 9-11 has affected us. You know, younger people these days know nothing of going to the gate at the airport to welcome family or friends right off the plane because of what happened, uh, one of the minor things that happened, Uh, as a result of the terrorist attack on September 11th. I think another thing we can do is to do what uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar advised us several weeks ago in the Relationship Quote of the Week. Namely, go out and make friends with someone who doesn't look like you. Asking yourself, what might it be like to be that person who doesn't look like me? That will make it easier to do, to get to know them. To do any of this is really not our natural inclination. We need God to empower us to think outside of ourselves, to think outside our box, our little tiny box. Well, as always, another thing you can do is to let me and your fellow listeners know what resonated with you about today's episode. You can share your thoughts on the leave a reply box at the bottom of the show notes, or you can send them to me in an email to john at caringforothers.org. I hope your thinking was stimulated by today's show to to both reflect and to act so that you will find the joy God intends for you through your relationships. Because after all, you were made for this. And now for our Relationship Quote of the Week. It comes to us from William Shakespeare. And I got to tell, before I tell you the quote, I got to, I got to just tell you how I came across this quote. We were visiting some friends several years ago in England. They have a, a missionary care center, and I think they call it the Midlands of England. It's on the western side of the, the, the island, the, more in the middle. And uh, 
we live, uh, or they live not too far from uh, Stratford-on-Avon, which is, you remember from high school English, is the hometown of William Shakespeare. And so we would take these little day trips when we were staying with them, and we decided to go there, and we went to the Shakespeare Museum. And uh, we walked in the door, and then I found something just absolutely stunning to me. It was a quote from Shakespeare. And I was thinking about the curator of the museum. You know, it says we're in this lovely lobby of the Shakespeare Museum, and they wanted to obviously put a quote uh, from Shakespeare uh, on on the wall. The thing I found stunning about this lobby and the quote that the curator or whoever makes those decisions placed on the wall, it just captivated my heart because I thought what he, what he had to choose from. What did the guy have to choose from? Shakespeare wrote 37 plays, 150 sonnets, two volumes of poetry, and someone has counted that he wrote 118,406 lines of either poetry or prose or lines from his play. All of that to choose from. And the guy that selected, or the woman, the person who selected the quote to put on the lobby, had all of that to choose from. And from all of that, all of that writing, what did the person select? The person chose a line from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, Act 5, Scene 1. And here's the line, and here's what appeared in the lobby that summarized all of Shakespeare. It's this, I long to hear the story of your life. Isn't that great? I long to hear the story of your life. Wouldn't it be great if that were true for all of us, that we would long to hear the story of someone else's life? Hmm. I long to hear the story of your life. Well, today, before I close, rather than just uh, saying goodbye, before I say that, I want to read a brief prayer uh, that Paul prayed to the church at Thessalonica. It's taken from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And here's what Paul said. And so I'm praying this for all of you today. Here's what he said. So we keep praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Wow, I'm really psyched today <laughs> uh, about all this stuff that we've been talking about. I hope, I hope you are too. Anyway, well, that's all for today. We'll see you next week, and have a great one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>